Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whitlaw. Now before I introduce our guest this week, I just want to say again that please do remember to subscribe, won't you? It's very easy. You simply go to the button that says subscribe and click on that. And then next door there's one saying uh, notifications. If you press on that, that means you get notified of all our programs as they're coming up. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, now, my guest today, I'm delighted to say, is one of the best-known journalists now in America. Andy No became famous for chronicling the progress and the rise of Antifa, which is a movement we hear an awful lot about, but actually know very little about. Uh, Andy has written for the Wall Street Journal, for the Spectator and the New York Post, and he is currently editor-at-large of the Post Millennial. Um, he's got a new book out, which is in fact coming out next week, which is called Unmasked Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. Um, thank you very much for joining us. It's a Andy. pleasure. Thank you. Um, before we sort of talk more thoroughly about Antifa, uh, it, they've actually tried to have your book banned, haven't they? Or they've really caused some problems. Yeah, in, in Portland, <coughs> where I'm based out of uh, the largest bookstore there, Pals, uh, it's, actually, it's, it's so big that it's a tourist attraction on its own. And uh, last week, there were um, days and days of protests. It caused the bookstore to shut down on two of those days. Um, in addition to the people who surrounded the business, there was the online component of it. And uh, immediately, the bookstore caved and said that the... Uh, unmasked would not be sold on its shelves mm. um, but it could still be available it's still available online and that wasn't good enough to the protesters um, so. but it's sort of the, I mean you've become it's right to say that for Antifa you are probably number one hate figure are you not yes yeah and that is an extraordinary thing to live with isn't it yeah I think if they um, well, I used to think that they were just ragtag group of people, street hooligans, um, and I was naive um, 2019 in my coverage of them. Um, uh, in the summer, I was uh, beaten by them and uh, given a brain hemorrhage. Uh, they could have killed me that day. And ever since then, they've been really trying to finish the job that they uh, started before, just relentless, uh, intimidation, criminal harassment, showing up at my home, releasing where I can be found in real time. Um, and, and that's part of the reason that um, uh, I've left Portland. It's just all these instances are reported to the local authorities and nothing's done. Even when names of suspects are provided, nothing's done. And this is just the breakdown of the rule of law that's been happening in many major American cities. It's not just Portland. Um, I think Portland's a, an example I understand best just because we've had so many riot arrests throughout 2020 and over 90% of them get their charges dropped and they get released immediately from jail. They don't have to pay bail. or If they do have to pay bail, there are these sources of funding that will pay for them and will provide legal aid as well. So, um, unfortunately, uh, our elected officials have failed in not viewing, in not recognizing this mm. violent extremist movement as a threat that they are, 
and now they've been able to build up a system and an apparatus networks to sustain and maintain and embed the political violence. Yes. I mean, I should explain that you grew up in Portland, didn't you? This is your hometown. Yes. Right. We've seen images, obviously, over the past year of what's been going on there. And indeed, you know, obviously after the uh, George, George, George Floyd uh, death, uh, obviously it's spread all over America. But in, in, in Portland in particular, um, can you just paint a picture of how the city has changed from the one that you grew up in? Sure. So, well, let me just start with something that happened recently. So on the 6th of January, um, the international community recoiled in horror at the riot that happened in Capitol Hill yeah. when rioters had seized a Capitol building for a couple hours. Um, all that was done that day and worst was done every night in Portland in the targeting of uh, local businesses, citizens, um, county and city property as well as, as federal property. So um, the people now who are calling what happened on the 6th of January the darkest day in America, I just, I wonder why they were silent when yes. my city was under siege last year, when BLM and Antifa actually sieged territory in Seattle, Washington for more than three weeks. And that zone that they claimed, zone of terror, led to several homicides and shootings. Um, uh, the change in Portland, I would say, is just that um, Portland has always, for decades now, has been a left-wing political monoculture, and it's um, people there are really proud of that tradition of mm. being uh, hard left and very progressive and weird for the sake of being weird and different. I think since 2016, what's changed, though, is that the fringe far left in Portland, which has existed f for decades, was able to go into the mainstream and, and operate violently in the open with the tacit support of those on city council as well as the mm -hmm. mayor and the local media. And the pretext that they used for their violent extremism um, at that time was because of the election of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have a new administration now for fast forward four years and they're still rioting. Yes, because I've seen images, you know, the past over the past week of them smashing up places. In fact, interestingly, smashing up Democrat local headquarters. Correct. That was in Portland on Inauguration Day. So the irony is that uh, thousands and thousands of National Guard troops poured into the nation's capital because there was this fear that Trump supporters would uh, try to interrupt the transfer, tr peaceful transfer of power. Um, that violence didn't materialize there, but the violence that did happen, which was pre-announced and shared publicly on Twitter for weeks now, happened in uh, Seattle, yeah. in Portland, in Denver, and uh, in Portland, the about 150 masked black bloc militants march unimpeded to the headquarters of the uh, Democrat Party of Oregon and destroyed it one by one, just smashing every window. Um, law enforcement arrested 
only eight people in that rampage and the weapons that they confiscated were knives, hammers, crowbars, uh, homemade firebombs, um, etc. But as shocking as that may sound, that is normal for Portland now. We had that yes. go on for more than 120 days in 2020 and it's going to continue because it was never really about Trump. It was about opposition to violent opposition to America itself and what it stands for. Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the, the nub of it really, isn't it? What, you know, because people say, we hear it now, as I said in the beginning, Antifa, we know this name. How would you characterize, what do they want? What are they trying to do? What, it, you know, what is the basis of their movement? So I'm glad you used the word movement rather than organization because when organization is used in singular, it makes it sound like it's a single entity yeah. when it's not. So it is an ideology also, movement, and organizations um, that are connected to one another in networks. And so broadly, it's a coalition of anarchists and communists who are revolutionary and believe in the overthrow of not just the US governments, but all governments through the use of violence. And they believe that they can, org they can create a new world, a new utopia. And actually at the inauguration day, Portland riot, one of the banners that they held was a, um, something like create a new world from the ashes. So they really believe that nothing can be reformed about America or any liberal democracy in particular. Um, and that society should be organized by into communist communes mm. free of government mm. and that sounds may sound just entirely theoretical but they actually have put that belief into practice when they have claimed territories that they claim were sovereign from American jurisdiction such as in Seattle and the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone otherwise known as CHAZ um, in Portland in December, they claimed territory for nearly a week in a residential area. And both times what happens as whenever you have violent far left coups essentially is it devolves into um, violence, terrorism, um, the either. So in Chaz, for example, they actually had, and I write about this in the book because I spent a week there undercover. So, the, even though they said they didn't have that they were uh, didn't have a government, naturally they did have leaders rise up and fulfill sort of mm -hmm. government rules, and they were totalitarian. They had in the Mexican restaurant that was um, in the center of the Chaz, they set up this operations base that was a tent that was also an interrogation area. So as an independent journalist I knew who was also undercover and he got busted when he was trying to record some of them secretly and they tried dragging him into this tent to interrogate him and to look at his video footage. So you can just imagine if they were given, if they have more opportunity for power what they do. Um, but you don't have to, have to just imagine, you can just look historically yes. uh, wherever communist regimes has come into power, they put they kill their opposition mm. uh, and the ones who aren't killed are put into prison camps. Um, so to see 
this movement of people, uh, not just in America, but also in Western Europe and Britain, not just excuse the excesses of um, the far left historically, but to actually really rebel mm -hmm. in that violence. Um, I, I'm shocked that more people aren't disturbed and recognizing them for the threat that they are, I think. Don't they sort of have a kind of cover? I think you, yes. you, you, you mentioned this in the book that they have fair weather, fr not fair weather friends, actually fellow travelers in various branches of what we might call our professional establishment. I mean, whether it's the media or maybe the law, um, people who sympathize with them or feel that they should sympathize with them. Yeah, so I think um, what makes them particularly powerful is that people don't really recognize them as the anarchist communists that they actually are. They think that Antifa are merely anti-fascists who are opposing white supremacy, neo-Nazis in the far right. They think that people who are part of Black Lives Matter are just fighting for racial justice rather than actually agitating mm. for revolutionary Marxist politics, which by the statements of those who founded BLM is what they want. So there's just this, this basic ignorance mm. of these really powerful political movements that have been able to gain so many liberal followers in respectable institutions and fields such mm. as academe and entertainment and media and journalism because they, they're cloaking themselves with this banner of fighting for social justice. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of started you on this, on this particular trail with Antifa? I mean, you, you have, you know, become a very, very well-known name. I know it's got a, a big downside for you, obviously, yeah. as you told us at the beginning, but Essentially, it is, you know, you've been going to these demonstrations, you have been going to these very you know, street protests and obviously being in huge physical danger yourself and indeed, what, as you said, was attacked. But how did you get there? Anyway, what, why did you decide to do that sort of reporting? What, what, what motivated you? So back in 2016, I was just a student journalist when I was doing my graduate studies at yeah. Portland State University. And one of my instincts at that time as a nascent student journalist is that I should be pursuing stories that people aren't being told. And one of them was that there was far left extremism in Portland that was being presented in the media by my colleagues, uh, by my peers, as merely people fighting for justice. Mm. And so what was particularly eye-opening in November 2016 was seeing the reaction in my city and across America to the electoral win of Donald Trump mm. and the response from the public at that time in Portland was to riot and that was the first time while on assignment that I saw organized marauding groups of people in black uniforms and masks carrying weapons and destroying property businesses and starting fires in the streets. And that happened for three days. 
Um, that was a very shocking 72 hours, of course. Looking back on that now, we had that times much, much more in 2020. Mm. But the response, the collective response from the public at the time was that that anger was righteous because this was people fighting against the, um, de uh, the electoral win of, a, of an incoming fascist regime. And um, I knew and talked to a lot of Trump supporters and just this cartoony caricature that was being presented in progressive cities and progressive media of Trump's base was not the reality that yeah. I was seeing. So unfortunately, what continued to happen then was just the political violence in the streets of Portland and other cities, uh, Northern California, Berkeley, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis. Um, it, it just started to become routine. Mm -hmm. And every time it was just driven by this rage from the far left. And at most of these protests turned riots, there was this Antifa, organized Antifa element. And I just wanted to find out more about who are the people behind the masks? Because for... Um, Unsurprisingly, the journalists who are normally so curious about these things weren't really interested in exactly. finding out yeah. who these people were mm. and what are their political views. And the more I dived into it, the more I was um, really shaken to the core that there could be s such a extremist fringe movement operating openly in the mainstream with no opposition, no opposition from big tech in that they could actually create crowd funds on Go, GoFundMe, Venmo, Cash App. Uh, they have accounts on Twitter, on Facebook. So a lot of their organizing wasn't even clandestine. It was mm, out in the open. Mm, mm. Um, but also I wanted to dig deep into the ideology because in talking to some of them before I became uh, a target for violence, it was clear that they had a certain coherent ideology that wasn't just anti-fascists mm. uh, opposing the far right. They were talking about burning down system, creating a new world, cap linking capitalism, property rights with white supremacy, fascism, racism, talking about how America can not be reformed in any way, that it must be destroyed. And so that's what caused me to dig deeper yeah. and deeper. And um, unfortunately, I've been, I've been warning about Antifa for several years now uh, to local officials in Portland and my warnings weren't heeded and um, Portlanders suffer and continue to suffer because of the inaction uh, of those who uh, are meant to protect the public in Portland and Seattle and other cities. You've obviously now written the book and uh, I, I imagine that basically the pressure from them um, will probably just get worse, won't it? But um, I wonder, could you paint us a sort of picture of the kind of people? I mean, there are a couple of descriptions, one in your book, something you say in your book, um, and also something else I've come across. And I, I, I just wanted to read these if I can. It's, I'm just trying to get a picture of the kind of people. I think we know who they are, but I mean, just f f for the audience, you know, Antifa have been called the revolt of the overprivileged, right? I mean, I think that's fantastic. But you've also 
said in, in your book that in fact basically the hatred that Antifa feel towards their society and fellow citizens comes from pain and resentment of their own lives, which I think is a very interesting observation. Can you expand on those two uh, statements? Um, there are broadly, I would say, two types of people that get drawn into militant Antifa activism. One is, um, as I quote, about these people who represent, uh, who are from an educated middle class background, many of them are white collar jobs. And actually, when I chronicle the arrests in Portland, because there have been so many, I look into what kind of work are these people doing? And shockingly, many of them are work as professors, mm. as teachers, mm. people who work in the medical field, people who are training to be doctors, and their attorneys, their lawyers. Um, and so many of them come from, you know, having master's degrees, having PhDs, and having uni the, the privilege of the university back education background. These are the people who have been, who are heavily influenced by the ideology and theories that are quite intellectual mm -hmm. by Antifa, actually. And, um, you know, they, they cite and are inspired by a lot of uh, radical left-wing um, communists and anarchist thinkers of the 20th uh, and 19th centuries. Um, but then there's another type of Antifa, and in the quote you, you mentioned from the book, you know, it's... I didn't want to create the same fallacy uh, or mistake, rather, of creating a caricature of these people that I have been vocal in opposing. Um, and being on the ground and covering, the, being very close to them now for many years, and many times undercover, you see a human side of them. And many of the Antifa who are carrying out some of the street criminal activities that activities that will lead most likely to to them being arrested and charged these are often people who are many of them are vagrants um, they're dealing with mental health issues and that recently have just transitioned from one gender to another and to another one um, unemployed so I have uh, like this is a certain like I guess sympathy and pity for them that people who are vulnerable and need protection have instead been pulled into this extremist cult mm -hmm. who has really no issue with using them as sort of their henchmen in carrying out these criminal activities and on the off chance that they get convicted and sentenced to jail, it's just a drop in the bucket because there's so many of them. Quite often you, you see these uh, pictures, the mugshots of people who've been charged, uh, they appear you know, on, on social media and they look like you know, very disturbed people actually, yes. or, or, or you know, something usually looks like drugs, I mean, mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, you know. But I mean, people who are, if you like, not at peace with themselves. Yes. So, um, 
Yeah, th this is an, a an aspect of my reporting that I don't get to talk about very much. It's just like, who, who are these people mm. really? And I think they've been, they've been radicalized through the literature that they're exposed mm. to by Antifa. Whenever you go to their riots, any of their events, their mutual aid events, in addition to them doing quote-unquote charity work, such as giving out free food and other supplies, they always have a table where the literature is available, and these tables are usually very popular. So all these grand theories uh, against capitalism, against America, are compressed into these pamphlets yeah. that are much more easy for the average reader um, to just read in a setting and get through, and they introduce really radical, extreme ideas. Uh, one of them is called, for example, Why We Break Windows, and that gives the intellectual argument for the meaning and purposes behind um, shattering um, the windows on businesses and properties. Um, but it's, the, it's these literatures that incrementally introduce them to these more and more extremist ideas and there's right. a whole library of them and they're available as PDFs online that can be printed out at home and easily disseminated. And this was in the, in the book, some of the um, shocking new information that's published for the first time is the curriculum of one of the uh, formal Antifa groups called Bro City Antifa, which is the Antifa group in Portland. And they're the largest and oldest. And I had documents leaked to me by somebody who tried to apply for membership in there. And it is as formal of an organization as, as it can get, despite them claiming to not really exist as really? an organization. So it's a vetting process. Um, a training process, a curriculum, uh, literature that they have to read, discussion groups, and they do this all secretly, of course. Um, and so, you know, it, there are a lot of steps in between a, um, a hot, somebody who's on the hard left to somebody who dons the uniform and costume and takes mm. knives and guns and explosives to riots. I mean, is it sort of right to to make a link between what you might call the woke and Antifa. I mean, because w w there is a kind of natural progression there, yes. isn't there? Mm -hmm. I mean, but, but being woke is an entirely establishment thing, particularly now in America. It's sort of almost like the establishment uh, ideology. But there is a link, isn't there, with Antifa? There's a link, and that link was made more explicit in 2020 with a lot of cross-pollination mm -hmm. between Antifa and BLM in that BLM, uh, excuse me, Antifa as an ideology is going back decades. The original Antifa group was the paramilitary of the German Communist Party in, in tour years of Germany. At that time, they didn't have these, these theories about intersectionality and, um, and trans and being people of color, being above these other categories that are ranked in a, in a totem pole. Um, Whereas the American manifestation of Antifa in recent years has really incorporated a lot of these Vogue theory, Vogue theories coming from critical race theory. And, it, and because of that, it's made them more broadly appealing and allowed them to build many allies. Um, BLM is an explicit ally of Antifa to the point of where I really consider them kind of the same entity in the U US. Really. Yeah, in that Antifa militants will provide 
act as volunteer armed security at BLM events. Um, Antifa know to go to BLM protests and can at a moment transform them into riots as that as happened in Minneapolis and other cities. Um, they know, they chant the same thing. So um, they have differences in their ultimate agendas. I mean, BLM is much more of a classic revolutionary Marxist, whereas um, Antifa reject the idea of gov um, governments. However, they share enough in the mutual hatred of the U.S. and its ideas um, that for now they're allies and partners. I mean, we have that here in, in Britain and Europe in the sense that it runs through the culture a form of self-loathing, right? Mm -hmm. um, this has been the terribly upsetting thing. Someone like me who's loved America and lived there is that America seemed to not have that so much. It, this is something we accept about Europe now. It's so ingrained that it's almost like we think it's a natural order of things. America didn't have that. But there is this kind of red in tooth and claw self-hatred, isn't there, or hatred for the country that has come far more to the fore in America, isn't it? Yeah, and that hatred manifests itself in not just vitriol, but violence. Mm -hmm. I think the intentional targeting, for example, of the federal courthouse in Portland last year for weeks on end, where rioters were returning every night with power tools to try to cut into the building, they brought explosives with them. They had, um, they divided into essentially into different units like an army and one unit was tasked with bringing these lasers that would blind and injure the eyes of the federal officers protecting that courthouse. They also then after that went on to try to burn down police stations, uh, attack other courthouses. Like all of this is meant to, I mean it's a literal attack on institutions that represent, buildings that represent the rule of law. Yeah. Uh, which is what they reject. And so when they are calling for things like abolishing police, abolishing the criminal justice system, they really mean that. They don't, they're entire, they advocate for justice, but their understanding of justice is entirely mm -hmm. different. And this has been, this is, I guess, what makes them so brilliant is that they remake not just like change the meaning of words, but really remake them from the ground up. It introduced really radical ideologies into the mainstream. So for example, um, this, uh, how they define violence. They don't actually consider what they're doing violence. They consider it self-defense. Mm. And how they consider and understand self-defense is not a, res a response to somebody actually actively assaulting you, for example. It's that somebody or the state has a wrong opinion, and that opinion is an attack on you, therefore you can, you're defending yeah, yourself yeah. by attacking them. Mm. Um, they mainstream the idea that uh, people over property, which sounds like a benign, noble thing to say, but what it means is then it provides the uh, legitima legitimization of things like looting mm. and destroying businesses. Um, that this is all a form of reparations. So, yeah. There's been a sort of, 
you know, as I think you alluded to earlier, a kind of denial. I mean, not just help from people, but when it comes to politics, I think famously one congressman said, there's no such thing, uh, Antifa is just an idea, isn't it? It's, this is kind of soft soaping of the whole thing. I just wonder, Andy, where do you see it going? Because people say, people looking now from a position of not really knowing that much about it, will say, oh, we've got President Biden now and such and such. Uh, these people presumably uh, operate entirely in a different kind of plane. Um, and Biden is just as much an enemy, surely, as Trump would be. Because they're right, they want to pull the whole thing down. Right? Correct. Um, one of the banners that was held at the, a very large banner um, at the Portland riot on Inauguration Day said, um, F Biden, uh, it's, excuse, sorry, it said, um, we don't want Biden, we want revenge in a large banner. And th there was a drawing of a Kalashnikov rifle on it. So, I mean, they're broadcasting very clearly their violent extremism, but the coverage from the media, the headlines would be protesters stage uh, anti-Biden pro uh, protests. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading the responses from people who were just reading the headlines and they just automatically assumed that these were Trump supporters mm -hmm. who were mm -hmm. trying to riot against Biden. So Antifa had been so powerful because they have so many not just al allies and sympathizers mm. in the in, in journalism and that's at best and at worst they actually will have Antifa members who are who work in mainstream journalism and I write about mm. that in the book and I mm. name names as well you do yeah there's quite a lot of new material isn't there in your book yes about it which I it's fascinating do you think as well Andy that the hatred they have for you isn't just because you try to you know investigate them and expose them but also because you are the son of immigrants to America you're a gay man doesn't that mean therefore that somehow or other you should be automatically in their universe on their side I know they are very frustrated that they haven't been able to take me down in the same ways that they have done to other people. For example, spurious accusations of being a white racist or white supremacist yeah, yeah. don't really stick on me. But they, I mean, they still try. They would throw anything and everything and hoping that something sticks. And because they have lots of allies in journalism, I've come to realize actually there's this, this system that gets established where extremely biased journalists will write hit pieces. Some of them are masters reports and some of them are just pure opinion columns that get published. And then these are then cited to represent my character in the Wikipedia. And then when you Google me, what you see is the Wikipedia and these hit pieces. Mm -hmm. So Fortunately, I've been able to rise all that. I still work and write and contribute to mainstream publications, but there's been so many people that I've seen um, canceled and had their lives destroyed based on mm. on these how these lies get repeated. So 
I'm motivated to do what I do in part because I feel like I'm providing some voice for other people who don't have the privilege of a large platform. Mm-hmm. And um, I... <laughs> yeah. I was very touched by something that you actually wrote in your book, actually, which I think says a lot about you and your advice. I want to re- read it out again. It says, as much as this book is about Antifa, it's also a letter of gratitude to the nation that welcomed my parents, penniless refugees from the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, to become equal citizens. Um, that shows to me, you know, the kind of man that you are. I mean, that is, you know, basically, you love the country that your parents essentially adopted, you know, came to. Um, and yet the people who are fighting against you or fighting against us, I would say, um, are people who just hate it almost out of a kind of resentment and a kind of possible, as you say, overprivilege or overindulgence, whatever it might be. Um, and I think, you know, I wonder when you look at a statement like that, I sort of think, well, how do you feel about the future going forward? Do you? Do you fear for America going forward? Do you fear for the America that your parents presumably are very proud of? I do fear for it. Um, I have always been a, a very strong defender of law enforcement, and uh, but like seeing how over and over when I'm reporting death threats to police and even the FBI and nothing getting done, it's really on a personal level, kind of rattled this um, mm-hmm. confidence that I had in that. Mm. But still, um, I think the rule of law in America um, it's still is still there. It's, it's heavily being challenged right now. Um, I think because the ideas that undergird it are being fundamentally um, damaged. Mm. Um, uh, with that quote, thank you for reading that from the book. Yes, I, the the thing, the trait or quality that I see missing from all these Antifa extremists is that they don't have gratitude. Mm. It's always they are driven by grievance that manifests mm. into a violent hatred. Um, and you know, if my fate could have been if the U.S. didn't take in my parents as uh, political refugees after they ta- their time in um, prison camps after the, the fall of Vietnam, uh, South Vietnam. Um, you know, I, I could have been brought up in a society where I didn't have the rights that mm. I currently have now by merely by um, luck of where I was happened to be born and the passport that I hold. So it's with all these attacks on the U.S. that have come and have been intensified and attacks not just like on the U.S. but like very fundamental um, ideas to liberal democracy. Yes. I, it's, uh, it's like a personal attack to me. Mm-hmm. Like this is the, this is a society that took in not just my family but hundreds of thousands of millions of refugees who have mm-hmm. fled um, communist revolutions and have 
prospered and found not just not have access to new new um, rights where they settled, but their ability for them and their children to prosper and to get an education and go to university. And so um, I'm warning about the threat of Antifa because America as an idea, as a nation state, um, should be defended and should be preserved. And the vision, the so-called utopia that Antifa are fighting for, I've seen with my own eyes, leads to death, destruction, and violence. Indeed, uh, very pr profound observation uh, there, Andy. I mean, I think um, it's extraordinary, what you do is extraordinarily brave, actually. I just wonder, just one thing, uh, when you were physically attacked, which was in 2019, and you were actually covering another street protest, if, if I'm right, and Antifa people attacked you, um, you know, but they, it was a serious attack, wasn't it? You were hospitalized, you had a brain hemorrhage. Uh, yes. Did you at one moment think, this is crazy, that's it for me, I'm not doing this anymore? Yes. And actually many mentors and journalist mentors who uh, I highly respect and speak to just told me, like, Andy, you've been covering them for a while. What's the point of going forward? You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting people around you at risk. Um, it's politicians, officials in your city aren't listening to you. So there's so many other things that you can write about. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I just, and so that was a thought I entertained, but then I just thought about like all the other people who before me in that day who were beaten during that riot and attack and had no voice or platform to voice what happened to them and that many people since who have been attacked, assaulted. I just like it, you know, I had to remove myself from this and that it's not just me that I'm fighting for, I'm fighting for all these other people who have not had justice. Um, I'm fighting for the American public, mm -hmm. for them to have access to facts about what is actually happening in major American cities. So that's why I keep going. Well, and also the other thing as well, of course, people say, oh, you can write about other things. And you just think, well, you've got to write about the most important thing, haven't you? Yes. You know? Well, look, I'm glad you have. And uh, the book is out, actually, on which you can see the cover again here. The book is out uh, this Tuesday, February the 2nd. Now, we will put a link, actually, on, onto the video, Andy, but it, presumably it's obviously on Amazon, um, you know, as they used to say as well, awkward bookshops, but bookshops are closed. Um, but uh, so they can order it from that. Um, I really hope it does well, deserves to. Uh, and thank you very much for, you know, sharing your time with us today and um we'll stay safe all right thank you for having me on it's a pleasure uh that's it for so what you're saying is this week we shall see you next time and as i say please don't uh, don't forget to subscribe will you thank you